Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hi, this is Dr. John, and I am thrilled to announce that Jory and I are opening up our retreat in beautiful Costa Rica from September 28th of 2024 to October 5th. Everyone wants fulfilling relationships. The hard part is love is not enough. So many factors can get in the way preventing ongoing connection, intimacy, and aligned growth. All healthy relationships start within. But when we have unresolved stuff, it can easily interfere with those we are seeking to be closest with. Whether you're in a long-term committed partnership or are single and are looking for love, this retreat will guide you in the heroic journey of healing yourself so that you can be open and available to cultivate the fulfilling relationships you desire and deserve. To find out more, visit joryrose.com slash retreats. That's J-O-R-E-E-R-O-S-E dot com slash retreats. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. John back with the latest episode of the Evolved Caveman podcast. Thanks for joining us. And today it is my distinct privilege to have with me Dr. Jason Frischman. And Jason is going to do his own intro today because we had a little glitch in the uh, in the matrix over a bio. So, Jason, would you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. And uh, you know, I like to talk about myself as we all do, so I don't mind that. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, let's see. So, I'll start with what's most important to me is I I am a husband and a father of two. I have two young sons. Um, I live in, for me is what is, uh, Shangri-La. I live in rural Vermont, uh, in a, in a place that I envisioned back when I was a child, when I was a kid, I said, I wanted to live in Vermont and I envisioned even the type of house that I live in now. And, um, so I'm, I'm incredibly sort of grateful and, and, and really aware of the fact that I've landed in a place I've always wanted to. Um, but more than that, or in a, on top of that, I'm a psychologist, I'm a narrative coach. I, I run a, a coaching program for men and fathers where I really focus on allowing and supporting men to discover who they are and how to connect more, um, powerfully at home with, with the, the people whom they, they love the most. And so I would say that, you know, we were talking a little bit about some of the things I should include. I will say the, in some of the interesting things professionally is I have a master's degree in adventure therapy and I have a doctorate degree where I focused on something called narrative therapy. So I'm an adventure storyteller yeah. or a storytelling adventurer. One of the, one of the two, one of the other. I love it. So <laughs> let's get into the narrative and the adventure yeah. therapy because adventure therapy was something I didn't even know there was a degree in. I don't know if there is anymore. At the time, um, there is certainly there is a big community. There's there's an international adventure therapy conference, and so it does exist. So, uh, but in before my degree, most people went and got some mixture of a therapy or counseling degree with an outdoor ed degree, and they sort of matched it that way. Um, I was in a, a, a master's program in southern United States where. Um, there was a very well-known outdoor ed program and a very well-known psychology program and the school merged it and they graduated, uh, three or four years worth of students of cohorts. And, um, because of 
it was in the state of Georgia because of the laws in Georgia around licensure and things like that, they felt like they needed to stop. So at the time I was able to say, I'm one of nine, you know, degreed adventure therapists in the world. Now there's quite, I think there are more, but, but I don't know what other programs are out there, but it is really unique, a unique take on, on both therapy and growth with people. So um, it's been a big, huge impact on who I am as a professional and as a person. Yeah, it sounds like a great way to go, especially for men. So speaking of men, let's get into the yeah. whole idea of hero's journey, because you have a unique take <laughs> on the hero's journey, a la Joseph Campbell. And and tell me about your unique take on this. Sure. Um, it starts, the context, the bigger context is I love the hero's journey. I love the narrative. I I, I wrote my dissertation from the, the, with the, in the metaphor of the hero's journey, um, and I would say the first 10 years of my career, I used the ideas of the hero's journey as primarily as the base for the therapy I did, you know, whether it was experiential adventure or in an office, you know, the way that I designed questions and supported people was using adventure therapy as, as a model or narrative. I'm sorry, the, the hero's journey as a model. But one of the tenets of narrative therapy is to question taken for granted stories in culture. So being aware of dominant stories and the impact they have on who we are as individuals and who we are as cultural members. So after about 10 years of doing workshops and, and leading programs or classes and doing therapy, I always ask the question, what's your favorite adventure story, real or fictional? Or, you know, I, I, I would encourage any of your listeners, like right now, take a moment. What's your favorite adventure story? What comes to mind? Yeah. Can we go over just a few examples? Star Wars, Indiana Jones, yeah. Iliad, yeah, Odyssey. I mean, it, those are all the ones that come up. Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, um, you know, not necessarily even in the fantasy sci-fi realm, you know, uh, Little House on the Prairie, right? Like mm -hmm. going off and doing something in an unknown area, right? Like the hero's journey narrative very in a very short way of putting it is you have a hero who gets either called out of of their their home area or falls like gets kicked out has to travel to another area another realm another area geographically and is tested and tasked and has to challenge themselves and with help from others and whatnot battles a dragon climbs a mountain gets the treasure and somehow has to find their way home where they're either exalted or shut. And it's the developmental path of what happens to the character in that narrative, right? Excellent. Thank you. And again, it's a wonderful story. But after about 10 years of asking this and always getting the same answers, my narrative training kicked in. I was like, okay, I love this story, but I guess I have to question it. Right. And the easiest way to to answer the or to, to to demonstrate the question was all right once the hero leaves to go off on this grand adventure what about everyone who stays home what about everyone who's in the fields or keeping the hearth burning or wiping the butts or you know doing dishes you know aren't their lives adventurous as well and isn't there magic in their everyday life that is powerful right like shouldn't there be and so as soon as I started that question, I started noticing so much of the work that I do with men, you know, in my psychotherapy practice, in my coaching practice, in many ways has to do with this, if I'm not epic, if I'm not legendary, then what am I? 
And as a result, men are angry. They're, you know, confused. They're lost. They're misdirected. There's so many depressed, anxious, you know, all of these things. And I'm not suggesting that all of it has to do with it, but I think there's a really big part that our culture's stories teach us how to be. And the way that we use language and media and, and perpetrate certain stories, I mean, you know, I, I would hope that any of your readers, even if they haven't heard of the hero's journey per se, by now we're going, oh, oh yeah, okay. Every Pixar movie uses it. Well, Every it, Disney it, movie It makes uses me think it. of uh, like men that are stay-at-home dads. And yeah. how that really weighs on everyone that I've talked to. And I, I did that myself for a few years when I was in graduate school. And like, I, I think that it really weighs on us in terms of our self-worth. Because it's not absolutely this journey, and I'm not out there fighting dragons or doing something awe-inspiring. It's rather exactly, mundane, right? And it's kind of thankless. A hundred percent. Which, and in many ways, and this brings up even bigger issues, is that the hero's journey is, by definition, a very masculine story. Even though, I mean, there's been a lot of effort by movie makers and writers to have women be the center of these stories or whatnot, but in in a bigger picture, the hero's journey is a narrative that is a masculine narrative, whether or not the main characters are men or women. And I might even argue it's a narrative that supports sort of patriarchal kind of dominance-based thinking, right? In the hero's journey, we're not looking at shades of gray. We're looking at right or wrong, good and bad, you know, and and there is a a proponent that or or it 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 propagate or it I'm getting the wrong keyword, but anyway, it promotes this thinking that like, we've got to go off and do great things and conquer. Um, You know, we don't think a lot about befriending the dragon, even though that does happen in some stories, it's usually about taming the dragon or freeing, you know, it's something that involves our power. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you're right. Stay at home dads or dads in general, right? Like dads who, are working their butt off, going off to work and making a good, good living, but then come home and like, aren't, you know, even if they think they're doing amazing things, if they're not like, you know, honored and and whatever the way that we're taught that people returning heroes are, then, then, then there's like a lostness, you know, from dads who come home and don't know what to do in the home and, and aren't connecting with their kids and aren't connecting with their partners. And, you know, so there is this, um, one-sidedness of the of the hero's journey uh when i first started playing with this i i actually my program which is now called journeyman was originally called adventures other half Hmm. and it was you know i I was playing with the the hashtag you know joseph campbell was wrong for a long time (laughs) mostly to see if i could get some conversation about it and i i you know what joseph campbell and and his contemporaries whatever were you know men in a particular context who were, you know, putting things out and, and, you know, it's wonderful. Like I said, I, I, I love the concept, but it's not that we have to throw that story out, but it's unbalanced. Yeah. It really is. It, it, it is, it shows only, you know, frankly, the way I say it is if like when the here in the hero's journey stories, when the hero is, let's say down and out and the, the dragon is stepping on his head, what happens? Usually there's a flashback or he reaches into his pocket and finds a, a token of some, a talisman, and he's reminded of what's really important. And it's usually like someone at home or, you know, the reason why he's doing it. And yet the whole story about why that's important is maybe given three minutes of a montage, 
right? So it's like a really unbalanced story. We are told about the adventures and all these great things, but we're not told about the 20 years of, 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 closeness with a partner or practicing with a sword or, you know, the, the meaning and the values of why people do the things they do to go on quests. Well, it also makes me think that the hero's journey dovetails almost perfectly with the man box culture that we grow up in, right? Be dominant, yes. compete, be aggressive, be self-reliant, don't back down. And yeah, I mean, it, it makes me think that it's, we're trained by society to be soldiers at some level. I mean, it's like society's yeah. way to train us to be heroic, to fight for our country, to protect our resources, to protect our women. And I think that's a very narrow view of masculinity and men in general. It, it, you're right. It 100%. only hits maybe half of the picture. And, and I think that's one exactly. of the big problems, right? Is we get cut off from, I would argue, two thirds of the emotional spectrum along with other parts of ourselves. And then it creates this inauthenticity, this disconnect, and this uh, misery. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And, and so many men have sit in my office or have been in the groups that I run where we talk about this. And, and, and you know, it is our culture's stories, whether it's the hero's journey or similar ones, glorify certain things and denigrate others. And it's no surprise to people who are thinking about it that much of the things that are glorified are man box attributes mm -hmm. and most of the things that are denigrated are stereotypically women, you know, female attributes, mm -hmm. right? Staying home, nurturing, taking care of, feeding, you know, all of these things. And, and so, yeah, when there's a man who's either doing that and not getting any sort of um, for societal support for it, or men who don't do it are feeling lost. Like we know if we're not, if we're living only half a life, you know, I think that's where we have higher levels of suicide, substance yeah. abuse, or even simpler, you know, dissociation Addiction. with, with yeah. phones and, phones. you know, addictions and things like that. And, well, I really and, like your, your yeah. phrase of like befriending the dragon, because that to me brings up acceptance and commitment therapy, or this idea of turning towards those parts of ourselves, either shadow parts or, you know, uncomfortable emotions, shame, guilt, depression come to mind. Um, yeah. And I think that's a really overlooked aspect of men getting to heal themselves. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I, you know, befriending, you know, I, narrative work uses a lot of metaphors and I'm, I'm, I've been a writer and I, I, I love, yeah. So metaphor is super powerful. Right. And in, in the hero's journey and in man box culture, and frankly, in Western culture, we have very limited metaphors when it comes to dealing with the, the stuff of life. Right. So in the therapy world, we are very, I think, uncomfortably landed in the medical model. And the medical model has a very limited metaphor for healing. It's like we kill it, we cut it out, or we, you know, cure it or banish it from the kingdom, right? Like yeah. that's kind of we, you know, that's kind of what we have. And so it's not surprising that in our hero's journey, we have battle or killed the dragon, right? And of course, people have stretched that a little bit in lots of ways. But, you know, right, and acceptance or, or and commitment therapy about befriending the dragon, but even more so in some of the work I do with men now with uh, the journeyman work, I have them 
create the metaphor for what they want to do with their issues, as opposed to me imposing it. Right. And I have lists of all the, you know, we can tame the, uh, you know, in, in, in our work, because we're not battling dragons in the journeyman work, we actually are encountering imps, our, our little imps, they're little buggers that run around trying to, like that. you know, mess things up. And, but the thing is, is that I have been able to say over years of doing this, that if we really look at the history of your relationship with this imp and we talk to the imp, we embody it. The imp's going to say, what are you talking about? I'm doing this to protect you. I'm doing, you know, I've actually got your best interest in mind. And most guys start off by going, uh-uh, no way, this guy's an a-hole, right? Yeah. Like, you know, but once we really look at it, then new, new metaphors emerge, right? We're not just going to battle it. We're not going to kill it. We're not going to banish it, whether it's anxiety, depression, all those things. You know, can we tame it? Can we train it? Can we teach it or ed- empower it? Can we, Or renegotiate you know, a new uh, role with it? Like IFS percent systems, right? Like I love that work. Oh, absolutely. And it's very similar. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And and so what is, you know, hey, if you want, you know, you you've already got entrance, right? The imp's already got a key. So let's and it's saying it's got my best interest in mind. So let's relate to it differently. Let's see what we can. Can we make it a minion? Can we have it sit at our table? Can we have it be on our council? Like the the metaphors are incredibly powerful. You know, I have guys who, you know, were in my program about two years ago and we still connect and they're like, oh yeah, so-and-so is imp showed up the other day and I had to like (laughs) remind it what it was doing. And, you know, it's a really powerful way to look at the things for a number of reasons, but one of which, which I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but when we look at our stuff as an embodied imp, I don't have to identify with it as myself. I don't have to say it's all me. I'm screwed up. I'm this. I'm that. It's I have this tendency, this pattern, this story that gets in the way in a way that it historically helped me, that kept me safe. That that like, even if it was never particularly functional, it kept me safe. Yeah. And well, all right, if I have that piece of me, that part of me, maybe I can work with it. But it's not yeah, I love that idea of, of parts or imps that, you know, developed at a younger age, typically in some difficult situation. And we came up with the best strategy or solution that we could at that age. And then that part comes yes. out at different times, generally to protect us when right. it, you know, perceives yeah. threat or difficulty. And, and so I think to look at that as like, oh, that's the five-year-old me or the five-year-old imp me. Um, right. And to be able to look at it with curiosity and without judgment and with some kindness. Um, that's a huge step. Cause I do think that a lot of this healing work is actually inner child work at this point in my career. I, that's kind of where I've landed. Yeah. And I can see that. Yeah. Say, I mean, do feel, you know, is really a lot of it's coming out from, from early childhood and we're just not aware of it. And, you know, it's not quite that simple, but <laughs> there's a overweighted impact by those imps. Absolutely. I mean, it's, we we have to know our backstory, yeah. You know, we 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 have to have an, an understanding of of our origins and our our backstory and and how things came to be, because if in the moment we recognize things aren't if things aren't working well, and I'm on automatic, you know, if I'm reacting instead of responding, then the pathways that were created throughout my life, those are the ones I'm going to walk on, yeah. So there's there's a bunch of other topics I want to get to because there's a lot of interesting <laughs> stuff that you that you do and think about. And one of the things that I want to cover is archetypes. And 
you know, I guess we could talk about through Campbell, I guess we could talk about through Carl Jung, but, you know, the archetypes that we normally hear about, particularly in men's work, are things like the king, the magician, maybe the warrior, and the lover. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. And, you know, (laughs) what are some of the other archetypes, which maybe, maybe those are the dragon, right, that we view negatively, but actually have something important to teach us? What are the lesser known? Oh, it's a great question. Some of the lesser known archetypes. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's a great question, but before we even get into that, I just if I can create a little context is you know Please. I think I, I love archetypes and I, I think they're really a wonderful way of understanding the world and and the stories within it. I think they're often quite misunderstood, and I'm not going to pretend to be a full expert in them at all. But as soon as we name an archetype, it loses some of its power, mm-hmm. right? Because archetypes in in many ways are stories that, you know, in, in the way that Jung talked about it in the, you know, the, the collective unconscious, mm. there's like, you know, a bubbling eruption of lava that every once in a while something pops through and the meaning can be different. The same thing pops through one side of the world or another side of the world. They're going to have a different name. They're going to have a different me meaning. The They're going to have, pardon me, you know, Camelot. Yes. Arthur. Yes. And, but it's true. Like the, the, there are different, different energies and patterns and stories will be given different names, meanings, and, and value depending on the culture and the time period and the, you know, the gender, whomever is using it. So as soon as we name something and we give it a, a meaning, right? The king, the warrior, the magician, the lover, those are men's, those are masculine, you know? And there are people who, who really hold very tight. They'll even say, no, it's not men. They're masculine and women can have that energy too. And which is true but it is so much more fluid than that. And so, you know, I I think what's really important when we think about archetypes is that they are stories and stories can be interpreted in different ways. They can be, you know, there's, there's some people who believe that archetypes are, are a real thing. They're energetically living and, and that they do pop up. Some people believe them to be social constructions, you know, that are, are passed along through culture, you know, it's undeniable that in every culture, not every, many cultures over time, a tree was an important symbol, an egg was an important symbol. Like these things, it's not, you know, it, it's, there's a truth to that. But, but the meaning is so, can, be, can, can and should be evolving, right? Yeah. So to go to your question, right, the king, warrior, magician, lover as art masculine archetypes you know, it started in the 80s-ish with like, or 70s and 80s with the men's movement, the mythopoetic men's movement around, mm-hmm. you know, with Robert Bly and Iron John, these yeah. kinds of Iron John, right? Like I, I have that here. Um, and it's lovely because it does give us a model to try to like do better. But I actually think the the focus on King, Warrior, Magician, Lover in the same way that archetypes of the hero's journey are are, are not helpful as much as they should be today as maybe they were back then is because they're still promoting you know some of this black and white thinking good and bad like strong and weak you know there's a dichotomy that is being or dualism that is promoted that promotes patriarchal thought and dominance-based thinking and so so all of that i mean even in iron john he starts off the book by saying, essentially, there are other archetypes for men or masculine ones, but those are soft. And even though I like soft men, they don't have much to give to us. Yeah. And, and one, of the, one of the big things there <laughs> that I just need to add is I think one of the important, simple distinctions 
for listeners out there is that we're trying to move from a mindset of power over to power mm-hmm. with. Yeah. And, and, and I might even say power over patriarchy, to it's all about power over. And, and yes. I think what we're trying to evolve to is greater cooperation, collaboration, power with other people, consent, agreement, that kind of thing, not power over. And, and I think we get yes. inculcated and brainwashed with this power over idea. Absolutely. And I would even say like in terms of power with, I would say like, you know, partnership, mm-hmm. right? To me, connections and partnership are, are the goal. And that's what, you know, as maturing men and masculinity, that's the goal is, is, is creating partnerships with the people around us and the people whom we care about and, and not dominance or, or I love power over is, is certainly there. But so, so to give an example of a different archetype that I use quite a bit, which, um, because again, if we, if we think about the hero's journey, um, being one of the dominant stories in our culture right now, we look at everything through the lens, right? So we're wearing glasses that everything we see is seen through this narrative. So if I said, Hey, there's this, there's a great blockbuster movie about weeding the garden and it being your turn to clean the toilets, no one would be excited <laughs> about it. Oh, I would definitely pay to see that. <laughs> right. But I actually think you, you know, in a different type of culture, and it's, it is actually happening more and more if you look at certain movies, but basically stories of everyday life are becoming more in people are being more intrigued. But, but just to know that when you look at the world or any sort of concept, you have to actually put energy into taking off the hero's journey lens before you start to, you know, evaluate. So the archetype that, that I use a lot in my work is the trickster. I love And the trickster is, is really one of my favorites. It always has been. But again, if we look at the trickster through the lens of the hero's journey, at best, the trickster becomes an anti-hero, but it's usually a villain. Yeah, think of Loki. And that's in our culture. Yeah, Loki, exactly. But, and I say this a lot, people laugh at me, the the Marvel series Loki, the TV series, I think is one of the most important mass media sort of productions for men today. It's Because it does not follow. Well, it's a great show. I mean, sure. But if we, I'm actually wanting to put out a small, like a little mini course about every episode and how it shows and portrays men in a different way. Because Mm -hmm. in addition to being a phenomenal show, it does not follow the hero's journey archetype. Loki is neither a hero, a villain, or an anti-hero. He's just a person. Loki is you know, gender neutral. And sometimes Mm -hmm. he he lives in the gray, Um, you know, men in the man box and in traditional masculinity, typical masculinity are really encouraged to see things black and white, good and bad, you know, all of those things. And also not to take that much responsibility, right? Like we do it. If if we win, we're right. And if we lose, it was because you were wrong, you Mm -hmm. know, and what's interesting about trickster archetypes and Loki is a great example is that they recognize that life is a zero-sum game. If you make a left, you can no longer make a right. And you take responsibility for things. So, you know, Loki, who has a grander vision of things, or I would suggest has a grander vision of, of, of time, space, and, you know, history, you know, one of the, not the MCU Loki, but in the, the Norse Loki, right, was, you know, did things that got him in trouble that then later on proved to be helpful. Mm-hmm. 
right? And and so to me, mature masculinity is to be able to say, look, this people, this is not going to be popular, but I think it's important. That's a trickster uh, uh, attribute. It's really not very much a kingly attribute or a warrly attribute. And so the idea of working with men to embrace sort of tricksterism, I joke that like bad jokes are are the modern remnant of the trickster, you know, um, and they're important because of that. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think the trickster is an archetype that I, I particularly love. And the trickster is often the storyteller. The trickster is often the, the bringer of, of information. Um, and also the questioner, you know, we talk about like the jester who is the only one that can give bad news to the king because they can do yeah. it with humor. Right. And so they are also the ones, you know, um, oh gosh, I'm going to forget the name, but the, the, the Greek God that brought fire to humans is considered a jester. Right. Um, or a trickster, excuse me. I forget his name. It'll come. Some, yeah, someone will yeah. tell us, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know who that is. But, but like these, so it's not Prometheus, you know, no, that was, yes, it was Prometheus. Yes, it, it was. Wasn't. Okay. And yes, I believe it was. And, and so, you know, these characters, they're storytellers, they're information bringers. They're also challengers of the status quo, right? They will parody and make fun of the powers that be. And a lot of the argument is in our culture today, where there's very little space and time for real tricksterism the powers that be start to buy their own crap. Well, and, and I like the, I like the archetype, sorry to interrupt. I like the archetype of the jester yeah. because the jester can speak truth to power, as you mentioned. And I yeah. often feel like that's what I'm doing, challenging status quo, challenging man box, the patriarchy, but also challenging men of incredible wealth to look yes. at their own bullshit. And that's a, that's Absolutely. a fine line to walk. A hundred percent. And, and yeah, you, you don't, you don't walk it right. You lose your head. Yeah. You know? And, and so you're right. And it, it is this, there's also a, because of that, there's an indomitable courage in the trickster or the jester, or, you know, those kind of things. And so, but it's a different, it's a radically different courage than the magician, the warrior, mm -hmm. right? The, the courage of the warrior is to follow the rules and to have a code and to listen to the king and, you know, all of that. Whereas, sorry, I'm thinking Lance a lot. Yeah. Oh yeah. That, they he, like, he broke the rules. <laughs> he did break the rules, and actually, some have argued that Lancelot was more of a trickster than than, than a warrior. Oh, fascinating! Yeah, it makes sense. You know, and and yeah, there is some of that, and you know, but the trickster's, you know, prerogative in 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 courage and 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 speaking to speaking truth doesn't come from an outside source saying you've got to do this for for you know God and your country. They're doing it because of a, a sense of like what's right. And what's, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's always debatable too. And so living in the gray is one of these things where we don't, we as a culture don't do that so well. No, we don't. No. We get stuck in that black so. and white, all or nothing thinking. Exactly. So, turning pages a little bit here. I, I've also thinking <laughs> that I, I think both of our careers we've made, we, we find it important to help others inject space between their selves or the masks that they wear and culture. And I was curious how you help people to gain a little bit of air between mask and self. 
I love that's such a well-worded question. I'm gonna have to remember that. Um, I, because I, I think I'll give you a minute to think about it. Yeah. Because I mean, I yeah, really please. think, especially for this man box phenomenon, one of the reasons I harp on it so much is it's it's the air we breathe. If we're a goldfish, it's the water we swim in. It's so close to us that we don't even realize it's happening. We don't even realize that it's infested our thinking and how yes. it's impacted us. And so it's a tall order to try and get some space for most men between their socialized, how they've been socialized for their whole life and yeah. who they truly are. Absolutely. So I'd love, I, 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 I'm having trouble giving an answer that isn't a subtle plug. Would that be okay? That's fine. Okay. Um, just because the answer to your question is so much of what's behind the journeyman program that I run. Um, I have 25 years of working in, a, in an office with doing psychotherapy with men. And about 10 years ago, I was just realizing like I could have these incredibly powerful sessions with men who would walk out the door into a culture that like didn't give a shit about what we were talking about. And no matter how powerful the session was, you know, 20, 25% of our gains were gone because as they walked out the door, they were hit with misogynistic advertising or expectations or, you know, whatever it was. And so that began the thought of like, I want to do something outside the realm of, of psychotherapy where I can build more of a community where guys can, can, can define this space and create that space between culture and themselves kind of together in a, in, in a, in a liminal space in a space between. And it, it then overcame to a place where I was sitting with a guy in a session and quite literally on the other side of my door in my waiting room was another man that I had this thought in the middle of the session that if I could just open the door and invite them to, to meet one another. They would both have significant less need for the, me as the therapist. Right. But I was, but I'm literally not allowed to do that. Like ethically, legally, I, I cannot do that, that without. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. So that's where coaching and journeymen started to evolve. And in, in, in real staying true to this questioning of the hero's journey we were talking about, I, many men's coaching programs use the hero's journey as their core curriculum. And I was like, I don't want to do that. That's not what I, you know, that's clearly not where my thinking is, but I wanted a core curriculum that, or a core story that my journeyman curriculum would fit into. And what it, the metaphor really came and this is to answer your question of creating the space, my favorite scenes in all of my favorite movies and books, even when I was a kid, were never the, the swashbuckling dragon battling. What they were, were the inns and the taverns and the pubs and the cantinas. And, you know, even as a kid, that was my favorite kind of thing. And I started thinking like, well, why do people go to those places, right? They go for fun, right? And recreation, but they go for, they go to hear stories and tell stories and be, be seen. They go to nourish themselves and relax and get some food and some rest. They go to get new tools and, you know, fix their stuff and rest their horses. They go to get, you know, information from the shady guy in the corner. Um, but they, they, and they go to get a new quest, right? And so for me, all of what Journeyman's story is based around, all of the work I do is based on is we create an inn where guys can come in, drop their shoulders and go, 
let me, let me tell you this, you know? And so we have this space that's outside of their own adventures, right? Like as a coaching program, my program is not the adventure. Your life is the adventure, but you can step out of that into the inn and get nourished and get some tools and get a map and then go back out and then come back and be like, guys, I got to tell you, listen to what's happening. And so to answer the question directly, how do we make space between the culture and our masks and things is we literally make space. We meet up and spend time together. The work that I do is about asking. So well, what does this mean if, or what do you think this says that you do blank or you think blank or experience, you know, so-and-so the idea that we deconstruct and identify cultural stories, right? Like, oh, what you're explaining kind of sounds like a movie. What movie might it be? Oh, shit. Yeah, it's a movie. Like, ah, I don't want my life to be this movie, you know? And, and so we look at the cultural stories and roles that are sort of in, placed upon us and then question them. And that's, that's what makes the space is really questioning these taken for granted stories. And the first thing we have to do is see them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think self-awareness is a first step for all of this. Yeah. And, and I, I like your metaphor of the inn because one of the things I was thinking that we go there for is for connection. And I, I think men are, I, I could say it a couple of different ways, but really, really longing for connection right now. Oh, absolutely. With other men. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, to your point, that's why I started my men's monthly dinner. Because I had the mm. same awareness that you did. I'm like, shit, like my thought was everyone I'm talking to is struggling to find adult male friends because we lose them. They atrophy for a variety of reasons yes. as we get older. And so I just went to each one of them and said, Hey, you know, I'm thinking of starting this men's monthly dinner. We'll meet once a month. We'll have dinner. There's no, there's no cost other than your own dinner. There's no agenda other than connection. Are you in? Every one of them said, yeah. And now the list is up to 30 and, you know, usually eight to 10 show up and we have a good time. We laugh, we tell some stories, we commiserate, um, <laughs> and we normalize each other's, you know, time on the planet, which is huge. Absolutely. Oh yeah. I mean, that connection is, is really one of the most, I mean, I love the idea of, of, of a men's dinner. I, you know, my, the, the company that I, that actually runs Journeyman, my, the, the, the parent company that I've started is actually called Nourished Connections. Mm. You know, I'm a cook. That's what I do outside of some of this work. And the idea of literally breaking bread or gluten-free bread with other people <laughs> is, is, is really, you're right. It's at the core. Like, let's sit down and eat together. Let's, let's, you know, someone once said to me, you know, if all of this work got you where you wanted to be what would you what's your dream and i was like i want to invite all the men to dinner yeah you know, I so i love that you're doing that consideration um yeah there was somewhere else i was going to go with that um oh i think that's the other reason why i enjoy talking about the man box culture and and the effects it has on men because i think one of the biggest barriers to this to getting that space between mask and self is defensiveness and we yeah. are socialized that our go-to emotion is most often anger, which is going to smack of defensiveness and externalization of blame. So often when I'm talking about man box culture, I'll say, you know, look, realize this isn't your fault. None of this is your fault. You yeah. didn't ask to be socialized like this. It just happens. However, it is your responsibility to evolve beyond it. 
Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. I mean, and yeah, that's what I, I think said. there's truth to that. And I, I also think that it's a way to get into some men's minds where they can exhale and go, Oh shit. You mean, it's not my fault. Like, Oh, and they can actually consider the idea long enough to yeah. get that, you know, breathing space. Well, and, and let's take it even further. It's, it wasn't your parents' fault either. Yeah. They were just doing the best they could, you know, culture and context that they were living in. Absolutely. I mean, so as I'm sure you see so many of the men that I talk to, we also talk a little bit about the relationship with their fathers or they, you know, or whatnot. And, you know, the, I, I, I actually get chills when I think about it, but like when men start to realize, like, oh, my dad was just a man too. And he was, you know, um, I actually am thinking about one, one, gen, one guy who was in one of my groups, uh, about a year ago. He came in with this goal that he wanted to be able to create a better foundation of relationship with his son. About a quarter way through the thing, we had a private meeting and he said, I don't know if that's the right goal. I actually think I have a great relationship with my son. And I was like, all right, well, let's explore a little bit. And what came of it was, he healed a relationship with his father in a way that he never expected and that he never thought was going to be, you know, um, even on the table. And, and it was surprising to him, but really powerful into, into the point where even to this day, grandpa is now part of his, his grandson's life in a way he never uh, would have been. That's awesome. You know? Hey, yeah, Jason, yeah. speaking of this, can I ask you, may I ask you a personal question? Sure. Of course. <laughs> um, what did you receive or learn from your dad that you appreciate? And what did you learn or receive from your dad that you would rather get rid of or leave behind? <laughs> Very good question. Um, you've got to be all on top of this. I, I got to imagine you've thought about this at some level. Oh, so much. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, my dad and I have a great relationship and we have a lot of things in common. He was a social worker. Um, wow. you know, so we have, uh, some interesting, uh similarities he was you know uh, for his time quite liberal yeah um so i i would say you know what i got from him and this is something that i've said a lot um a lot of the journeyman work and concept and perspective is about you know chop wood carry water or i had chop wood carry that. water break bread you know like we do what needs to be done because that's valuable not just because it's a chore Right. Um, and well, also, can, oh, I, can I add something to that? Because that's a famous book title, right? From Zen Buddhism. Yes. And right. I, the reason I remember reading that book when I was like 19, I was like, I don't know what the hell this means. And later I was like, oh, what it means is be mindful, be present in whatever it is you're doing and lose yourself in the task. So if you're chopping wood, yeah. chop wood. Don't be caught in you know the negative past or the negative future. If you're carrying water, carry water. If you're being with your right. family, be with your family. Sorry, I absolutely. Throw that in. No, and and, and you know, and I think you know, we, we can go. We can have a whole hour just even about that phrase because <laughs> yes. there's so much more to where that can go. But I think that's something that I take from my dad is that you know, uh, a great example, and it wasn't even from growing up, but when my firstborn, when my son was born you know, lots of chaos, you know, newborn baby, we're at home, we're all that kind of thing. And anytime you looked, my dad was like cleaning up the dishes and doing the dishes. And, you know, he wasn't like 
let me do something big and help you all. No, he was like quietly, like, let me do what needs to be done. And, and, and I always, I've taken that as something for me is, is really important is what needs to be done. Let's do it. Let's just, let's make it happen. And not in like a masculine fix it sort of way, but in a service sort of, um, you know, uh, 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 an element of like a, a servant, you know, you, you're, you're, it's a discipline where we, we do what needs to be done because there's meaning and there's value, right? There's more treasure in doing the dishes than going off and battling dragons, in my opinion. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what I got from him. Um, I think something, a couple of things in terms of things that I got from him that I wouldn't, that I, I actively try to move away from is, you know, I think he, um, sometimes struggles with being as engaged. So sometimes, you know, his own sensitivities might cause him to isolate a little bit. Um, he's not, even for a social worker who's quite liberal, not as emotionally expressive as I think I would like to be and that I would like my sons to be. You know, I, I told my, um, I was had a conversation with my 15 year old about journeyman and the work I do. And I said, you know, Poppy, who's my dad. I said, Poppy doesn't say I love you to me that often. Mm-hmm. And I said, I know without a doubt because of who he is and who we are that he does and he loves me deeply, but he doesn't say it that often. And that's okay. But my son says, you tell me you love me all the time. And I said, yeah, that's, that's, and he said, actually, he said, and, and Poppy says he loves me. And I said, yeah, <laughs> Poppy's done his work too. You know, yeah. Poppy, Poppy's doing his work and, and that's important but I said to him, I said, you realize that lots of men aren't comfortable with that. That isn't something that they, you know, they'll show it through doing stuff. They'll show it for lots of ways. But the idea of expressing and cuddling and, and you know, like that element, one of my journeymen, one of the guys said, I want to do this because I want my 10-year-old to be as comfortable holding my hand at 20 as he is at 10. And I want to be able to encourage that in him. And that's very much about what I think, you know, I, I you know, my, my father who always does what needs to be done and who is always there. I think if I called him right now, he would be here in six hours coming from, from New York. He would yeah. do it in a second. Um, but in terms of emotionally, just, just being willing to go there. Right. I think that's something that we, this next generation of men, we, we have to evolve towards. Yeah. No, I agree. Thank you, you know. for sharing that. Yeah. Um, and and so let's. We only have I don't know five or seven more minutes. But one of the questions I wanted to get to was the topic of bromance, because it feels like every Jason Siegel movie maybe ever made. Um, but talk a little bit about the bromance and how that trope has really kind of hurt us men. Yeah. Um, years ago, I, I years ago, I, I ran a, a, ther- a men's group, a therapy group. And one, I'll never forget one of the guys who was a stay at home dad said, I finally saw another dad at the playground. But now I feel like I'm dating. I have to figure out how to get his digits. <laughs> and, and he was like, I don't know what to do. It feels weird and awkward. And what if he doesn't like me? And, you know, and I was like, yeah, Friend oh. anxiety. it was so Yeah, it was so poignant because he's like, I see all these women, moms, like chatting away and a new mom comes up and they're like, and they envelop her. And, and, you know, I certainly am oversimplifying mom dynamics. And so I don't want to speak to that. But, but like, he was like, as the only male, I was often sitting alone or feeling like, you know, do these moms think I'm just like the divorced dad who's has visiting hours? Like, 
what's you know and so you know the idea of bromance is was very real for him and then i think about it and it's like the fact that there is a genre of movie specifically designed to like parody mock or portray yeah, all men having friends yeah all comedy is you know we're, the idea that it's even called a bromance is so mired in sort of homophobia and mm-hmm. patriarchal thinking that it feels almost like, even if it's a feel good comedy, even if it feels good that they finally became good buddies, right? The fact that it had to be overcome to sort of that we're friends, we, you know, all of this, it has a real, again, going back to stories impacting, you know, cultural stories impacting our individual it has an impact on kind of who we are and how we say, and, you know, men who have deep and meaningful male friendships are rare. Like it it is such a hard thing. And, you know, I tell a story of my deepest, closest friends. I'm, you know, I'm almost 50. I've been friends with him since we were 12 and we've been really close friends. The vast majority of that time, it was in, it was until our, maybe late twenties or early thirties where we could say, I love you. And even then it was, I love you, man. Mm-hmm. I love you, man. And then it was into our thirties or forties where it turned into, I love you, brother. I love you, brother. And it was only in our late forties after a 35 year old friendship where I could really look at him and say, I so value your friendship. I love you. It took, and and I'm a pretty open guy. He's a pretty open guy. And it took that long for us to really be able to do it. There's a problem there, culturally. Well, and to what extent, I mean, because one of the man box tenants is don't be homosexual. Right. Yeah. Along with don't be feminine. But to what extent do you think that socialization process harms or impacts our ability to have other male friendships? Uh, dramatically. I mean, I think by definition, right? There is this very, it's sort of understandable, but weird thing that a close friendship for men is somehow equated with a romantic one, right? Like, I love that guy, no homo. Uh Uh-huh. Really? Really? And so to be emotionally expressive and receptive and connected for a man must be relegated to his sexual partner. Well, I think that phrase, no homo, is, I mean, that speaks volumes. I I remember hearing that for years. Yeah, it's it's horrific. And, and, And it does. It speaks so much to this, you know, to power over or dominance like who's in control here right and and you know the the there's clearly right being gay being a woman is clearly in the man box scene is lesser than yeah And, and it is something that is either overt lots of men we know overtly buy into this or really subtle i'm sure you and many of our your listeners would say like i know men who are pretty liberal and who are very who would say yeah they're a feminist but still have these like, you know, like subtle expressions of that, that we have to do the work on. Yeah. We have to know myself um, included. When, and I'm thinking about what, what do men typically do if they're going to hang out with a guy, a friend, a male friend. And for some reason, my mind goes to like hyper-masculine activities, like gun range comes to mind, a little bit of an exaggeration, but right, right, right. let's, uh, but I think even on a lesser scale than that, like, okay, let's go to the bar. We'll have some drinks, yeah. 
and it requires yeah. the alcohol to lessen the inhibitions before we can actually get to anything meaningful if we ever get there at all. Right. Yeah. I hang out with my buddies. I mean, I say it, you know, I, I've used this before and recently in some talks that I've given, but I can't tell you how many men have said something to the effect of if my wife left me, I'd have no one to tell, but I have buddies. I got friends. But I talk to them about cars, women, and beer. Yeah. 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 So the question and, I have for most sports. men is to what extent, yeah, sports. Thank you. I forgot one of the major four. Um, to what extent <laughs> um, are you comfortable speaking at anything beyond surface level? Or to what extent are you comfortable speaking with your male friends about, or in ways that don't involve things like sarcasm, put down one upmanship and joking? Yeah. I mean, first of all, that's a great question because, you know, having people become more aware and mindful of their own practices and things like that is, is essential, right? Like the awareness of it is so powerful yeah. because then you sit, you kind of go, Oh, like that, that, that is the way I talk with almost all my friends. And, and not that I'm opposed to humor or joking. I, I mean, I, I'm the jester, so I love yeah. all that shit, but Absolutely. it's also really important to look at is are those the only ways I can connect with other men? Absolutely. And I would say also, this isn't to demonize beer, cars, sports, or women, right? No. Like those are also really fun conversations yeah. to have if they're not the only ones and if they're not in this certain thing. And, you know, I actually had a guy in my group who's like, just, just so we know, just so everyone knows, I do like drinking beer and watching football. And I was like, yeah, there's cool. nothing wrong with that. Me too. That's awesome. Well, I don't know about yeah, beer, you but, know? you know, maybe something else. Right. Yeah, no, and I'm not a sports guy, but well, I, I like high school. I watch my kids sports, which I love. But anyway, um, but yeah, it is it is really interminably harmful for the, the, you know, in the limitations, because then you have guys who go out and do things and come home and are just as lonely as they ever were, yeah. just as isolated, just that, you know. Well, Jason, oh, I, I got to say, I've, I've greatly enjoyed this conversation. Um, where so. I feel like I should have a little button. I want to have a button that I can like have applause. So I can say Dr. Jason Frischman, everybody, and then hit the button. Um, you know, woo. But um, where can people get a hold of you if they would like to find out more? Uh, sure. Um, the easiest way is I have a website. The it's called it's www.journeymenfoundation.com. That's the easiest. And I'm, I think I assume you have show notes. We can have that in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Well, put um, all that in the show notes. Yeah, I'm 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 on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook, and I'm on uh, you know Instagram. Instagram is a lot of my cooking, so if you're interested in that, <laughs> put that out there. Um, Excellent. But I think you know the website or just email uh, Jason at nourishedconnections.com. Those are you know, and I, at this point, I'm in a place where you know it's just me, and so if you email me, you'll get a response from me. I love I'd it. love to have a conversation and connect with anyone. Well, and thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It's been a joy. Absolutely, John. And likewise. It's the beginning of a friendship. Let me put it that way. So thank you. Um, you know what? And it took, took the thoughts out of my, out of my head. Yes. <laughs> and that is it for this episode of The Evolved Caveman. If you liked or loved this episode, please be sure to rate, review, and share. If you didn't like it, you don't have to do a damn thing. Thanks so much. I'll see you next time. 
Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 